This episode of All Power to the Developing was recorded during a storm in progress. You may hear some digital interference. Do not be alarmed by that. That is just due to the storm and the recording. Thank you for being a listener and a supporter of All Power to the Developing. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to All Power to the Developing, a podcast of the Eastside Institute, where social justice, human development, and community building come together. This is where you will meet activists, artists, teachers, scholars, helpers, and healers who are bringing creativity, hope, and possibility to individuals and communities all over the world. Host of this episode of All Power to the Development, podcast of the Eastside Institute, an international research and training center for social therapeutics and performance activists. I'm on the faculty of the Institute, and I'm also a longtime community organizer and uh, one of the founders of the Castillo Theater, which has been producing progressive political theater for almost 40 years. And it's as a, a activist and a theater artist that I first met our guest, Professor Mauricio Salgado, who teaches in the Department of Drama at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. Hi, Mauricio. Hi, Dan. Buenas tardes. Thank you. Um, when I first met you, Mauricio, it was about 10 years ago, or probably even more, because at my age, the, I lose track of how much time has passed. But you were still primarily working with an organization that I think you helped to found, Artists Striving to End Poverty. And as the name of that group implies, you were already, long before it had a name, you were a performance activist. That is, you were approaching art and performance in particular as a means of engaging social inequality and justice. Now, now some folks come to performance activism from political activism and some from the theater. You seem to have united the two at a very early point in, in, your, in your process. So I, I was wondering if you could share a little of where and how you grew up and how you found your way to performance activism. Yeah, gracias, gracias por la invitación. Thank you so much for this invitation. I grew up in the Everglades watershed, otherwise known as South Florida, uh, Miami to be specific. Uh, although I'd say that a lot of the my understanding of performance activism uh, came through community centers and churches further south in the Redlands, in uh, Homestead, in Naranja, um, the more rural parts of South Florida, South Miami. My folks run a community center for migrant farm workers uh, called En Familia. And through En Familia and even before En Familia got started, my parents would lead workshops on marriage counseling or parenting for the migrant community. These were primarily people from Central South America and the Caribbean who were, among other things, reckoning with this culture and generation gap. 
immigrants who had children born here in the States were raising in the States and were reckoning with this cultural difference. Uh, how do they bring their cultural values to the US and live them out when their kids were experiencing something different? Um, furthermore, within a US context that had a different uh, take on gender and on gender roles, where maybe in the context they came up in, there were stricter roles and relationships between what men could do and women could do specifically. Um, we're now, these families are now in a US context where uh, those roles are being challenged. And so my parents would lead these workshops to reckon with all of the above. And these workshops, um, they, they weren't like we understand workshops maybe in a, in a traditional school setting, right? Rather didactic with a, an aggressive teacher and a passive group of listeners. No, my folks had to immediately engage through role play, right? There was no passing out of, of handouts or a chalkboard. It was a circle. Everybody had soda in hand. Music was playing. And my mother would immediately come in the door screaming at me, Mauricio, por Dios, calmate, que ya no puedo más. Jeez, Mauricio, will you please calm down? I can't anymore. And there I am kicking and screaming, but mommy, I'm so hungry. Uh, and she would relate about how long her day was and how tired she was and how hard it was to have to tend to me after a long day of work. And then my father would come in and be like, mujer, where's dinner? And my mother would be like, excuse me? I've been working all day. What have you been doing? He's like, I'm working too. It's your response. And they go at it, right? And they're arguing. And I'm in the middle crying or uh, hiding in a corner. And just as the tension rises, escalates to the point of maybe violence, they'd freeze it. My mother would turn to the community and would say, Mujeres, do you recognize this? And they would giggle and laugh uncomfortably, right? Recognizing themselves. And then my mom would, you know, try to get them to talk about it. So tell me more. What is your experience? How does this happen? And my father would, after their conversation, my father would say, okay, hombres, ustedes, what do you think? Have you experienced this? And the men would be dead silent. And the women would laugh at them knowingly, right? Uh, and eventually my father would get them to speak. And then my mother would turn to me and say, y tu mijo? Uh, what do you think? What is your experience of all this? At which point there'd be a gasp. The community would gasp in a kind of nervous unknowing uh, because when are kids ever brought into that conversation, especially kids within our cultural context? Never, they're not. And my mother would rehearse me, right? To say something very simple and be like, it feels bad to be treated this way. Um, and as I'd hear people laugh, I then get courageous and share more because, you know, when my mom does this or when my dad does this and I'd see my parents start to blush because I'd be airing their dirty laundry. Uh, but that's it. It's in that moment, right? It's it's obviously the role play. And then it's the interaction after the improvisation between us as we're moving into dynamics that we've never had before. Me with them because I don't know them and them with children. And the learning that's possible between us in that moment, uh, that's where I learned the power of theater mm -hmm. uh, to, to learn something new, to encounter in a new way. Wow. That's, that's a beautiful story. I haven't heard that before. That, um, and then how did that, that little, little boy uh, grow up to, to do the work he does? And, and yeah. 
Gosh, I mean, you know, when you when you're raised by community organizers and social workers, um, you just spend all your time in community centers or in meetings. Uh, and so I was just around that and pulled into that. And my mother would force me to speak at every public event there was. And I was running youth groups, um, whether or not I wanted to. It was just kind of came with the territory of being their child in South Florida. Uh, public schools at the time uh, weren't the best. So my parents tried to place me in magnet programs. If you're familiar with the magnet system, system that comes out of the civil rights movement in the 70s, a system to integrate across community um, around certain skills, right? And so I was in so far that I was a bit of a clown and comfortable being in front of people. My parents encouraged me to go into the arts, into performance. So I, I did, I trained in theater, um, from the sixth grade onward, my mom the third grade. Um, and then at some point when I'm in high school and I'm thinking about, you know, college, uh, I was actually trying to be a parent. First and foremost, I was in love with my high school sweetheart. That's what I've been trained to do, right? Was to be a parent. And my teacher said, no, you need to go to Juilliard, uh, because you have a skill that you need to develop further. I didn't know what that meant. Um, so yeah, I ended up at Juilliard and my second day of class was September 11th of 2001. Oh, wow. Uh, and so like so many others who are of that generation of that moment, uh, reckoning with what it means to be in our industry when so much is happening in and around us. Uh, and that helped, that helped guide me, that helped clarify for me that what I wanted to do was continue what I'd been doing, which was understanding how to activate art for the purpose of what all above name it right like bridging um you know across the chasm of difference uh advocating for human rights community rights um interrogating systems within communities that were unhelpful uh and artists driving down poverty the organization you're talking about comes from that from the 11 or so of us at juilliard at the time students who all had the same questions and we're trying to figure out what to do with that and the faculty who were there to support us. Um, and from, from there, you know, that was 2004 when we started that 2003, officially 2006 and been in that work ever since. And what, what does artists striving to end poverty do concretely? Yeah. Um, I want to preface this by saying as a, I, I am a co-founder, although I'm no longer working with the organization, I left a step. Uh, the acronym ASTEP in 2014. But ASTEP um, partners with organizations domestically and internationally um, to provide arts education, arts advocacy um, as, a, as a tool for those organizations and the particular you know, issues they're trying to um, relate in their community. So it really depends on the organization we're working with. And I'd say that ASTEP emphasizes um, that art can be a, um, a way to learn about change making, a way to develop agency, a way to think about what's possible instead of being bound by what's probable. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's from that beginning that then it develops into concrete practice um, in the community that we end up working with. So for me, that meant I did a lot of work in South Africa, in obviously here in the States, in various contexts, in India. Uh, in Peru, and you work. Do do they work mostly with with children, young people? Yes, 
yes, the emphasis is children, although oftentimes that means providing programs for parents too. I know when I was there as the program director, it was, uh, it was important for us when we were doing our needs assessment with our community partners to identify whether or not those partners were providing services for parents. Uh, and if they were, how could we help um, uh, those parents understand what was happening in the arts program? So those parents knew how to receive that information. No doubt you recognize this and so might the listeners. Uh, I can provide one person a tool, but there isn't a community that understands that tool and the benefit of that tool. Um, it's not going to be useful and instead can be harmful. And we learn that the hard way. You started out at Juilliard, which is impressive in and of itself. And then I know you've gone on to uh, be involved with, start, lead uh, a number of projects and organizations since then. And also to, to, to get two other very... Uh, impressive degrees or areas of study that you uh, you studied theology at the general theological seminary in new york and then you went on to get a master of fine arts in directing from brown university in rhode island um by the way from my point of view you were like this mystery man because you went from artists uh, to eliminate poverty to the next thing i knew you were studying theology and the next thing i knew you were you were doing MFA, um, and then you came back to New York, and we reconnected. So, but uh, could you? Um, so, you've traveled uh, what to some might seem like a long and winding road. However, uh, it seems to me uh, you have a through line in your journey, and in my language, I, I would call that through line development. Mm. You, you, you've been working on developing your skills as an artist, as an organizer, and you're working on developing your ways of seeing and approaching the world mm -hmm. and, and deepening your, your ways of connecting to people. And you've also been helping to bring into being environments and activities that encourage others to grow and develop. And so at least that's my take on your journey. So I think it would be only fair to give us your take on your journey and share some of your evolution and some of the highlights of what you've been doing over the last few years. Oh, goodness. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for that invitation. I find that every time I tell this story, I learn something new about myself. I'm developing a bit further, right? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I come from um, Catholic socialists. Um, a kind of Catholicism, a Latin American Catholicism that is rooted in liberation theology. This is a, a theology that if you, you know, if you want to synthesize it, uh, it begins with the story of a poor brown man on the edges of the empire uh, resisting uh, rebelling against dehumanizing institutions, both structural, systemic, as well as internal, psychological, spiritual, right? Um, and this person is really challenging all the ways that things work in an attempt to remind us of the great value of everything, everything that exists, the beauty in all of humanity. Um, you know, this, this Catholic liberation theology in a Latin American context is what leads to you know various revolutionary attempts to empower the poor right um 
there are those who would say that although Augusto Boal would never claim liberation theology, definitely influenced by partners, by thought partners that were thinking in similar ways. Um, so, and so far that I come from that, it's easy for me to tell the story of how I end up at Union Theological Seminary. Um, where Cornell West is teaching at the time, where the Reverend Dr. James Cohn, who is considered the, uh, the, the father of black liberation theology in a U.S. context. Um, so many radical thinkers who are trying to interrogate uh, the way that religion has reinforced empire, uh, has assimilated, perpetuated genocide, et cetera, justified it, right? Uh, and are also looking at the ways that uh, the oppressed have used religion as a framework for their liberation. Um, and so I went to think with them, to think radically mm -hmm. about what, what are people doing? How are people pushing the envelope? Because where I did find myself at ASTEP in, in 2013, I found myself reaching the limits of what the nonprofit structure would allow. Um, a structure that right, uh, requires us to work within the confines of our mission statement, mm -hmm. uh, within what we can justify to a granting committee. And it doesn't give a lot of room to the flexibility that our communities actually need, where our communities are like, hey, but this is us. we're also in crisis over here and we need this support. And we're like, yeah, but that's not our charter, so we can't do that. Yeah, but, right, all of these buts in which the nonprofit creates, justified or not, so I was looking to think more radically. Who else was thinking big about what needed to be done creatively? And I think people who are engaged in questions of the divine are thinking radically, to say the least. Uh, and then it's at Union Theological Seminary where I hear Michelle Alexander speak. Michelle Alexander of the new Jim Crow, uh, mass incarceration in the age of colorblindness, right? Which so many equal to the a kind of one of the fundamental books of this contemporary civil rights movement moment. And Michelle Alexander made this case that this, um, this generation of activists um, would be shaped by the work they were doing across silos of specialization. That the academic institution had started siloing people so that they thought themselves in very particular in a very particular way as on the production line, right? This division of labor where I could be a tool for one thing only. And in that way, we were limiting our creative capacity to imagine what was possible. And so Michelle was saying, if you're here to be a preacher, go be, um, go join the ranks um, in a union at a, you know, at, at a factory. If you're here to be a teacher, um, go get in with, um, you know, local construction workers. If you're just pushing people, get out of your silo of specialization, go be somewhere else. And it so happened that at that time, some of the directors I'd worked with, the artists I'd worked with, were running the directing program at Brown University. And they were saying, hey, will you bring your thinking over at Brown? We could use some of that here. So in fact, I, yes, I got an MFA and on paper, that's what it, it is what it looks like, right? I got an MFA in theater directing. I did three years of intense study in directing on the American stage, which is a very specific thing. But I actually went there to have a radical conversation across areas of specialization to be like, and what is the stage doing for the community? What is it doing for the laborer? What is it doing for the people who are in need of healthcare? What is it doing for 
et cetera. And through that work, we were actually able to organize and make that program fully funded and begin to reckon with the academic institution in the ways it uh, is exclusive and doesn't welcome people. I will offer this final anecdote. Um, over the years of my work with ASTEP, working with young people, uh, I had young people say to me often, Mauricio, thank you for doing this. Um, and this is really nice for the moment, but what am I gonna do when I get out of here? They were reminding me that it's one thing to work and respond to the crisis point. It's another thing to look upstream to the institutions that were pushing people into the river, right? And, and like in perpetuating these systems that drown people. And so in that way, I'm, I'm now in academia trying to interrogate how exclusive, uh, elitist and inequitable these systems are in the hopes of changing them. Yeah. Well, that's important work, and it's hardly all that you're doing. There's so many th things you're doing outside of academia. And we're going to take a quick break here and come back and hear about some of that other work. Thanks. Hi, I'm Melissa Meyer, Associate Director of the Eastside Institute. Welcome to All Power to the Developing. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. In each episode, we introduce you to some amazing performance activists, play revolutionaries, and developmentalists from around the world who talk to us about their creative grassroots efforts to build a better world. If you like what you hear, please follow and share the series. You can find us on Amazon, Spotify, and Podbean. We'd love to hear your comments and ideas. Like everything at the Institute, the growth of all power to the developing depends upon the people who create it and benefit from it. We hope you're one of them. Thanks for your support. And now back to our conversation. Hi, welcome back to All Power to the Developing. This is Dan Friedman, and I'm speaking with Mar Mar Mauricio Salgado about his important work, uh, both of his life and what he's doing now. And we just heard a, a lot about um, his journey from South Florida to New York University. Um, but he's, he's also doing where he's engaging the contradictions of academia. But he's also doing a hell of a lot excuse my language, a heck of a lot more. And, uh, and uh, I wondered, Mauricio, if you could tell us a little bit about some of the projects you've been involved in over since you've returned from, uh, from Brown University. Yeah, happy to, Dan. Um, and the ways in which they're all a part of my development, right? That, you know, I choose NYU and gosh, it's something to accept being in a private institution of that size, in a department of that size. And as you know, Reverend Cohn used to say at Union Theological Seminary, um, for all the theorizing we're doing, if we're not actively engaged with the street, with the people, um, our, our theory isn't going to have the effect we hope it has. Uh, so uh, that led me to Freedom University. Freedom University, which is a school based out of Atlanta, Georgia, um, that provides rigorous college prep classes um, and scholarship application assistance for the undocumented students of Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, learned about them online. CNN did a big thing on them. And because of the pandemic, they were recruiting 
faculty from around the country that could zoom in. And so I reached out and I said, hey, uh, this is this is the community I grew up with. These are the people my folks actually um, spend there, have dedicated their lives to. Um, you know, I have relatives that would be considered under that, you know, category uh, as undocumented, my people being from Colombia. Um, I'm first generation U.S. born. And uh, and so this was uh, this I taught for a semester. I collaborated with an artist, Amelia Osategui Bonilla, to teach classes on the the liberative move of performance, how performance could be an act of liberation. And honestly, some of the work I was quoting, Dan, was your work uh, and the course that I took that you and Lois uh, taught that I, you know, where I met all of you once upon a time at the Eastside Institute. Uh, so that that work, I think of as the same work as what I'm doing in New York University and a way to be in conversation with both spaces, right? To use the the power and the, the, the privilege, the rank of NYU to um, help build the platform and support the platform at Freedom U, to also, while inside with the students, interrogate these elite institutions with those students and be like NYU is, you know, let's think about this so that as those students think about transitioning into ideally applying for other schools, they can relativize how some of that power flows and functions and, and use it appropriately. Um, so there's that work. There is the work with Art Equity, which is uh, an organization uh, deep in the movement of making arts institutions more equitable and accessible. Uh, I met Art Equity through my organizing at Brown University, and I'm now one of their core faculty members. And so um, what I do with them is I, I help consult with academic institutions uh, to develop action plans um, for equitable policies and practices. Um, and we begin from um, an anti-racism lens. So we, that's the work that we're, that's the direction, the orientation of that work. Uh, and then there is um, the Poor People's Campaign, um, which, you know, this new iteration of the Poor People's Campaign, uh, which started back with the SELC, Dr. King, um, the the purpose of it right was to have this this big gathering in Washington DC in the summer of 68 which did take place um, but didn't have the impact and many people say it didn't have the impact it had because they killed Dr King beforehand and other leaders of the movement we've got a new iteration alive um, and moving well and strong 50 years later I met the organizers of this iteration through Union Theological Seminary uh, the Cairo Center which is located in at Union uh, the Reverend Dr. Theo Harris, and then the Reverend Dr. William Barber, who is actually a theologian in residence at Union. Um, and I've been organizing with them, trying to organize artists to bring them into the movement, to get involved, to learn the platform, to push politicians to accept the Poor People's Campaign platform. And most recently, my beloved and I organized 31 dancers to create movement pieces um, that uh, were responding to testimonies uh, from people um, in the Poor People's Campaign. So again, trying to use the platform that we have as artists to lift up the stories that you know people are sharing of themselves um, and expand, broaden the base. Yeah, I've seen some of those dance pieces. Uh, they're beautiful, and it's they're, what what makes them even more beautiful is the juxtaposition with the testimony. From I mean, it just. It, it embodies, in a sense, in a, such a beautiful way, um, 
that what, what people are saying in the campaign. So, yeah, and, and if people wanted to see any of those dances, how would they access that? Yeah, they would look up YouTube dancers for the number four, the PPC, PPC being the acronym for the Poor People's Campaign. Yeah, dancers for the PPC. Something you're pointing out here, Dan, about these videos that I think is important. It's important um, for us that these are pieces where you see the dancer and the person speaking side by side. And then the end of the video actually invites them to go finish listening to the rest of the testimony. So the dancer is using their capacity, on the other hand, to orient, to point people to this testimony, not um, to build up their own clout or to center themselves as a performer. Um, but to emphasize the voice of the person who might not otherwise be seen by the dance community, by those who follow these dancers. And, uh, and, and then, of course, you've also been involved with a very important project for a few years in, in Arkansas, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, remember 2019, this is a project uh, that was inspired by Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative. I heard Brian Stevenson's call for artists, educators, organizers, uh, preachers, whomever, to get involved in the movement of uh, reframing the cultural narrative. Our cultural narrative informs our biases, our biases inform our policies. He knows that firsthand as a lawyer. Uh, who enters a courtroom and immediately sees people think of him as the defendant instead of as the lawyer because he's black and inviting us all. What are we doing to reckon with the history of mass terror and lynching in the United States? So in answering that call, I got involved with a small cohort and various local organizations in Phillips County, Arkansas, um, wh where a massacre took place in the fall of 1919. And the historical record on that is controversial because the government at the time did a very good job of hiding what actually took place. So historians have tried to do the work to dig up what, what happened. And as we understand it, somewhere between, potentially between 100 and 300 uh, black tenant farmers and their families were killed over the course of three days and their lands were stolen and justified by the legal system at the time. So our work has been over the period of eight years to reckon with the memory of that massacre and the impact that it has on today's community, centering the work of local black organizations. So again, it's not us as outsiders who are trying to, you know, propose ideas or approaches or techniques. On the other hand, we're producers trying to lift up and support the local work and make sure that they have a platform to communicate and gather their communities. Yeah, that, that project uh, means a lot to me or moves me quite a bit because I, I just think it's such an important overall project for Americans to relearn their history. I mean, so much has been hidden and stamped out. And yet, in some ways, it's not hidden. People internalize it. They, they, it's in their bones. It's in their muscles. It's in their postures. It's in the way they move. But oftentimes, they lose lose touch with how they got to where they are and why they feel the pain they feel and and so as a playwright I, I tend to write plays about American history about things that have been hidden from us so it I think it's so great because what you're doing is not just writing a play but you're actually creating an ongoing project with the descendants of the of the community that faced that that lynching 
Yeah, that. Dan, and, and I got to say th this with the point that you're making here is a bit contentious at the moment as artists reckon with whether or not they have a place to engage with stories across difference, right? Me coming from a Colombian background, first gen, born to my particularities, what it means for me to be engaging with a black community of Phillips County. Um, and for some people, they've said to me outright, you, you don't belong here. You don't belong there. And I understand that argument. Uh, and yet I've, I've developed into this understanding that my, my identity is formed by my location. And if I'm going to claim being a part of the fabric, the social historical fabric of this country, as you're naming, I've got to reckon with its history. I've got to claim it too, me too, um, and engage with those stories in a way that is ethical, um, in a way that centers the story and not myself for my own kind of capital, right? For my own gain. Um, but that still acknowledges that I'm, I'm a part of that history too. I'm, and so will my children as I, and so far that I'm going to continue to claim, uh, belonging to the history of this country. Right. No, I do. I do think it's a very complex and it's sometimes painful, but I, I, I do think that people who cross cultural and historical differences do need to find ways to create new things together. That if, I mean, we learn so much from the other, if the other comes with an open heart and with a creative imagination. And, uh, and we really limit ourselves if we think we only can work with people who look like us. Agreed. Yeah. Well, this is, this brings me to a very uh, challenging question. And I ask you without having an answer to it myself, but, uh, something I, I ponder a lot. Um, the kind of work you're doing is in, incredibly uh, beautiful and, and important. And there's people doing similar kinds of work all around the world uh, in small projects, big projects, um, grassroots projects that, that bring performance to help people grow and develop. Uh, how, what, what connection do you see You've mentioned, you've talked about how you, even as a little kid, you saw that when people performed, it opened up doors, it opened up new possibilities. How, if at all, does that all relate to performance and the development to power, to reorganizing the systemic problems we face? Um, what is the connection between, see, a lot of times theater, I think, is very good at engaging patterns of behavior of what we do into, on a, if you will, a mini scale. Is there a way that that mini scale can get scaled up to challenge the, the bigger cultural uh, uh, blockades we face? Yeah, yeah, great, great question, Dan. I, you know, uh, relate to it small, right? In this uh, local uh, interactions, uh, more often than not in my work with ASTEP, what would happen uh, was we were working with organizations that needed to do something with kids because there wasn't any other programming for those kids in the community. And these parents had full-time jobs and they didn't have the money to get care and our programs were free. So we would work with these kids, but we would work with them to develop original pieces and we would often charge them or challenge them to, to reflect on something that was 
ultimately telling, you know, was communicating a journey of their growth of what they aspire to, of what they dream, right? The way you talked to me about belonging, about becoming, right? Moving from one state to another, inviting these young people to move from who they were in that moment to who they wanted to be. Um, and we, and along the way, we would often invite them to talk about, and what are the challenges that are getting in your way, right? And to build that into their story so that by the time they got on stage and their parents and their families and their communities were present, uh, they would be performing this for those people. Yeah. And so often we heard those parents say, A, I didn't know my kid was a performer and B, I didn't know that was my kid's story. Mm. Now, there's a piece here that's instrumental. It's that the community organization had built the trust with those individuals to make sure that they showed up to the event. Right. Furthermore, the trust to make sure that they were willing to listen to what their students had to say. Because we've also worked in contexts where parents didn't show up, no one showed up. Or people showed up and they thought what we did was offensive. Um, but there is uh, all of this to say, and I, I think there is, there is power that's being reckoned with in that moment, right? A young person who otherwise wouldn't imagine themselves, A, to have the power to be in front of other people, and B, to be in front of their parents, revealing things they have not revealed to their parents. Parents, which in a lot of contexts for young people, that's the ultimate power structure, right? right. Um, and then in that moment, to have those parents, the people in power to listen, right? So I'm again reflecting my initial, my, my childhood experience, right? Um, but it, it only worked because there were organizations on the ground doing the regular work of listening to those parents, creating programs for those parents, acknowledging. So in that way, it's like trying to um, inform, uh, develop the people in power to recognize that they had power, how they were using their power, how they were abusing their power, where they didn't have power, right? Like to get them to develop their own power analysis so that they could see themselves in these relationships that they were having with those that they might be oppressing otherwise and vice versa for those young people. And then hopefully performance can be a space, an intervention, an opportunity where folks can see themselves reflected. But the work has to continue with that organization. The performance is just a singular intervention, right. not the end all be all. Yeah, that's so important that um, the performance has to be connected to other kinds of organizing to, to both for sustainability and for it to have a long, an impact in the long run. And I also love what you're saying about um, not treating the parents as oppressors or bad parents, but uh, you know, creating an environment where everybody can get a chance to see differently and, and grow. Well, that's so much of what I admire about your work. And I wanna thank you so much for sharing some of that with our with our listeners. We've already given people the, uh, the uh, dancers for uh, PPC uh, uh, website. Is there any other website you'd wanna let people who wanna find out more about your, your work? Yes, you can obviously find out about my work through my own website. Um, it's my name, Mauricio T. Salgado.com. Uh, and I also welcome you to check out my work in Arkansas, remember 2019 dot org beautiful thank you again thank you so much for taking the time i know you're not only a very busy performance activist and professor but new father and that keeps you very busy so uh thank you again and 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 my love to to your family and i think i can say the love of all of us listening thank you so much thanks dan my love to you and yours
All Power to the Developing has been brought to you in part by the Baylor Wolf Fund.